This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. It's been a busy day, another busy day, and we continue to hear from the big banks. Morgan Stanley reporting their results today. Uh, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman, he caught up earlier with our Bloomberg News Editor-at-Large, Eric Schatzker, and they talked about many things, of course, the quarter and, of course, the impact of the virus, but they also talked about the future of finance and how the character of the industry will change after the pandemic. I think, yes, we will have less footprint. Um, I think that's highly likely. Um, you know, we've, we've proven we can operate with effectively no footprint. So now, on the other hand, as I said, I want most people in the office most of the time. Uh, so, no, I don't think the character of the industry will change as a result of that. I think what has been informally done with the number of employees in the last few years migrating to a day at home will become, over time, uh, much more of a formal uh, structure that we probably evolved to. All right. Of course, that was the CEO of Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, catching up earlier with our Eric Schatzker. Shares of Morgan Stanley, by the way, just down about two-tenths of a percent. Let's talk about the quarter, though, with Allison Williams, Senior Analyst, Global Investment Banks and Asset Management here with our Bloomberg Intelligence team. She's on the phone from New Jersey. Allison, nice to have you here. I hope you are doing well. Your family's doing well. Um, talk to us about Morgan Stanley. What did you? What, what was important for you on this call? So I think, you know, Morgan Stanley sort of capped off the trends that we saw across the banks, and I would say three key things. One is uh, just the fact that uh, we don't know on loan-loss provisions. We saw a huge increase provisions at all of the lenders. We saw sort of the least at uh, Morgan Stanley, um, and that really is focusing the risk on sort of the lengths of, of the recession and, and the fact that we might have more provisions to come for those banks. And I think that's really the central risk going forward. The second thing, of course, was a huge jump in trading. Mm. Obviously, there's questions around that being sustainable. It's the best quarter uh, when we looked since 1Q12 with strength across and equities um, for a variety of reasons, a strong start, but then a huge jump in March. Uh, so we, we expect that, that probably that huge quarter is not sustainable, but we do see opportunities for some things like derivatives. And then the, the third takeaway um, is really just the fact that this is a very different recession. And so um, with Morgan Stanley today um, and all the banks, as I said, we saw strong trading. We did not see the marks that we did in the last recession. And by marks, I mean things on the balance sheet that you have to mark to market due to valuation. So we did see some hits. We saw some manageable um, things there um, at Morgan Stanley in particular today. But the fact is that these banks have much stronger balance sheets and companies like Morgan Stanley and Goldman really sort of differentiating themselves uh, versus last time where um, it was sort of apparent that even the brokers had become sort of big lenders. 
Allison, I'm so well, interested. Sorry. Yeah, I, I'm so interested in that particular point about where we are with these banks now versus the financial crisis. And I know that people are loath to give credit to anyone anywhere in America, generally in the world in 2020. And yet it feels like a lot of the things that were done to ensure that a lot of the things that happened in 2008 didn't happen again kind of worked. Is that your sense? Well, it is definitely true that, um, you know, the system sought to make the banks safer and better capitalized. And that um, is for sure what we're seeing. The banks are part of the solution, this this crisis that we've been saying, and I think most people agree, versus being the problem in the prior crisis, they really drove the last downturn. And this time, they're really being looked to as a support, you know, the one pivotal question that remains for banks really relates to their dividends. Mm. And in the last crisis, it was really in the last crisis, it was really a matter of weak balance sheets um, and sort of they didn't have the ability to earn the money. Um, and, and you know, it was sort of a, a little bit more called for during the, due to the fact that they didn't have the capital. This time around, you know, the banks are in good shape. They've raised um, their dividends modestly, but they've really been returning capital through buybacks. Bank of America is a great example. They said that they've purposely kept their dividend at a level where they wouldn't have to cancel it or suspend it. But we are getting more and more calls, and you might see this sort of continue to bubble up if the recession extends. But it's not due to ability. It's more due to sort of a call to support the economy. What's also interesting, and let's not forget, man, because so much has happened since February when they announced plans to buy E-Trade Financial. I remember when the headline came across and we're like, whoa. So, I mean, unfortunately, it was kind of at the top of the market there. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So it was, but it was, you know, it's a, a stock deals um, sort of moved down with the market. So it's a little bit different than having to um, have promised cash at the top of the market. Yeah. Um, so, so both evaluations are falling. Now, if we, you know, think about E-Trade and think about, you know, the reasoning behind it really was sort of more of a long-term deal for Morgan Stanley. It's set to close in the fourth quarter. Um, you know, what's most interesting to us around that deal is Morgan Stanley's promise to not cut any staffing this year. Mm. They did do some pretty steep staff cuts at the end of the fourth quarter. Um, But, you know, due to the timing of the deal, what does that mean for any sort of different job changes that might take place? Um, You know, the other thing that that I would say is just the fact um, that Morgan Stanley is the equities leader. Their trading actually did not, you know, go up as much as some of the others. So I think, you know, there were some sort of questions around that. A lot of that has to do with mix. They are still the leader in that business. All right. I think we're going to leave it there. Allison Williams, thank you so much for breaking down uh, Morgan Stanley for us. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And some comments we had earlier from the Bloomberg School of Public Health down at Johns Hopkins, of course, supported by Mike Bloomberg. We are delighted to have our own Johns Hopkins expert with us, Dr. Laura Murray, senior scientist and clinical psychologist for the Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Houston. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for joining us. We have spent a lot of time talking about antibodies and testing and all sorts of things related to the medical side of this crisis. On the one hand, the other thing we haven't talked maybe as much as we should 
is about the mental health side of this. I know we're experiencing it here in the tri-state area big time, uh, especially uh, in lockdown and anybody who's got kids uh, and jobs and trying to balance all that certainly is experiencing it. What are we learning so far? What are you seeing in your practice? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, We are definitely seeing across the globe an increase in the normal aspect of sort of worries and fears and anxieties around what's happening with coronavirus. And um, certainly those tend to spike a little bit more as certain states are going through um, spikes in the curve and and others are sort of waiting. So we're definitely seeing more um, attention to it, though, also in the media, which is great. Well, and what's your advice to individuals who are at home? I have talked with colleagues, you know, especially individuals who maybe aren't married or have a partner or have family at home. You know, those of us who are with our families, you know, there's interaction with others. There are other people, though, that feel incredibly cut off. What's your advice to people to recognize that maybe something's not quite right and that they need some help? Yeah. Boy, that's so important. I I think that there's good movements around trying to reframe the idea from uh, social distancing to really physical distancing, but keeping in touch socially. And for each individual, that looks really different. Some people really need more of a, of a visual while others are fine on the phone. Um, some people just really need that. Uh, some of our younger generations are, are really okay as long as they have access to some of that social media. So it's really finding what you need. One of the concrete suggestions we talk about a lot is if you start feeling down, you really want to reach out to those around you and schedule calls. So you Mm. should be scheduling calls, but you should also ask other people to schedule calls to call you. Because sometimes when we start feeling low, as you guys probably have felt at some point in your life, you just don't have the energy to to call that person or to reach out to them. And so that's really important. Just another quick point, I I cannot stress enough how important schedules are. And, And what's interesting is that it sounds so simple and so sort of silly in a time like this, but it actually regulates our brain chemistry, everything. And so really trying to go to bed and wake up at the same time and have specific goals during the day really can also help you from starting to get into that hole. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. And I, and I know that we've been trying to practice that uh, in our own house, even if it's like a morning walk uh, with my daughter or something like that, mm-hmm. which uh, Carol and my team have to put up with like the wind blowing, as we I'm, love, like walking we down love the whole lighthouse. It. We love hearing Alice uh, in the background. Every morning. Um, <laughs> I, I do wonder, uh, Dr. Murray, about what companies can do. You know, we're a business network. We've got a lot of people who are mm-hmm trying to work for a living, trying to balance everything, trying to lead teams. And, you know, I know that it is easy to sort of get caught up in in the day-to-day and sort of getting work done and, you know, trying to jam everything in. What can leaders do? What can business leaders do for their folks to, to, to make it a little bit easier? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that one of the first things we always talk to leaders about is really taking care of yourself. So understanding what is a leader's fuel, what motivates them and refills their tank, because as a leader, you're really driving the optimism, the, the camaraderie, the, the sort of vision and the ongoing movement of your, of your company and your team. And so I know that sounds backtracking a little bit, but what we're seeing is, is leaders who aren't taking care of themselves, now their teams are falling apart more than ever. So I think that's really important. The second thing is really tune into what your teams are needing. So, for example, there's there's leaders that are running organizations that have literally had to be shut down 
But then there's also, for example, leaders of hospitals where their people are busier than ever and being called to do things that are that are really scary. So it's really important as a leader to tune into right. and understand the needs of your team. Yeah, you've got to be, there's a certain amount of sensitivity and sometimes yeah. you've got to do a little bit of probing to kind of feel people out. Um, you know, I've certainly felt that with some of my extended family and stuff, just checking on people and making sure everybody's doing okay. But and that certainly... self-care piece is too, because you can't really be good for other people and you can't really care about them unless you're, you know, caring about yourself. It's not selfish. It's actually selfless uh, in a lot of ways. Dr. Laura Murray, thank you so much uh, joining us from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Checking out the cover story of the magazine this week, it is about Carnival Corporation, what it knew, when it knew it, what it did or didn't do when it came to the virus. Let's get into this story. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber is with us on the phone from Brooklyn, along with Bloomberg News tech reporter Austin Carr here with us. He is on the phone from New York. Joel, this is like a classic Business Week story. Yeah, so uh, it was one that, you know, look, it's, there's been a, so much um, that's happened over the last few months. But, you know, one of the things that I think had stuck with everyone has, has been this, this line of reporting just around the cruise ships, which obviously, of all the places that you probably don't want to be during a pandemic, a cruise ship might be pretty high on that list. Um, and it turns out, like, lo and behold, like, that is definitely true. And, and Carnival, which is basically, you know, like the biggest name in cruises and you know, all, all kinds of subsidiaries that you you maybe think of as, you know, their own private lines actually are, are carnival lines. And what Austin's reporting, and uh, this was a big team effort uh, beyond just him, but like what, what this really shows is um, a company that was uh, slow to react, even though they had early indications how bad things could get. And, uh, you know, I'll leave it to Austin a little bit here, but um, it, it really does speak to an industry that is in a, in a really perilous moment here. That's Come on in, Carr. Hey, hey, guys, it's, it's good to hear your voices. Same. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, we spend a lot of this time sort of talking not just to pastors on these affected ships, but also government health officials, uh, as well as carnival executives, really trying to understand what exactly was the timeline for all this went down? And we rewind the clock all the way back to the very first alert that they got, uh, which was at 11, 12 p.m. on February 1st. And just the delays and constant uh, mistakes that were made along the way before they informed passengers of these coronavirus or potential coronavirus uh, uh, infections aboard their ships. Um, and so this really sto- the story is really just, uh, in, in a lot of ways, a reflection of how so many of us took so long uh, to come to grips with this crisis and sort of uh, respond to it appropriately. I'm curious, too. I mean, having spent some time with Carnival and been on a ship, they're very careful about kind of guarding who you talk to in terms of employees. And I'm curious about, I know you talked to a bunch of passengers. It's really cool, um, the story online. But, you know, how easily people were willing to, especially employees, talk about what the conditions were. You know, we, we've actually found uh, the, the passengers were in many ways, and, and I, this is the most respectful way I can put this, they were more aware of the timeline and how this all went down than often Carnival was. When we were trying to get exact answers on what happened when, who knew what when, many times uh, Carnival would give us one answer, we'd go back to these passengers and they would say, no, that's not how it went down. 
Carnival is uh, not accurate in their uh, timeline. Um, but yeah, no, what, some of the most colorful parts of the stories are just the announcements. I mean, picture yourself on this ship, you're cruising around the ocean, you're having a, a grand time, you're, you're going to you know, uh, ukulele concerts, you're going to hula lessons, you're playing bridge, you're having daiquiris. Uh, and suddenly this announcement comes overhead saying there might be an infection uh, aboard the ship because an ex-passenger, someone who disembarked, uh, had tested positive when they got off the ship. And so the big question for all those passengers is, oh, my God, am I going to be infected, too? Yeah. And, and Joel, I mean, there are some cinematic aspects to, to this story. I mean, you really could, you know, we, we joke about this sometimes, but like there there's a Netflix movie in here somewhere of, you know, what it was like there on, on those ships. And the other thing that becomes clear, and you alluded to this earlier, was this idea that that this was so central to the global outbreak of this, whether it was here in the United States or in, in Asia. What jumped out at, at you specifically in terms of telling the broader story here, Joel? Well, I think there's um, uh, this is a huge part of the story, Austin's story, is, is this uh, risk assessment that yeah. I think – um, Carnival was clearly doing, but, you know, I think business leaders everywhere were, or, you know, attempting to figure out how do you assess this risk and, and what do we do about it? And I think the, the unfortunate part for Carnival was that, you know, once there is sort of an outbreak, um, on a, on a ship like this, and for a moment, um, back when, you know, the, the, uh, pandemic was still an epidemic and contained to China, there was actually a, more cases on a Carnival ship than anywhere else in the world, right? So, just gives you a sense of what they were dealing with early on. But that risk assessment um, is like, how quickly can you pivot and, you know, go into a conservative mode? And it does not look like uh, Carnival was able to do that in a meaningful way. And like, to be clear, like, I mean, there is still two boats on the on the right. ocean right now right. that are Carnival boats. And, you, you know, they just give you a sense of like how challenging that business model is. But also, like, you know, they 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 may not have um, acted as quickly as they probably would have liked. And those are boats with thousands of people. Austin, you talked with Arnold Donald, the CEO, who in many ways was brought on to help write the ship, pun intended, after a series of mishaps under their predecessors. Um, and everybody kind of remembers all of the various, you know, problems that they had, people getting sick, people stuck on the trip, you know, it, uh, ships the poop crashing, ship. the Let's Italian ship. You know, the it, poop ship. Yeah, exactly. So what did he have to say about all of this? Yeah, so Arnold Donald, the CEO, he'd come in about, you know, five or six years ago to, as you mentioned, turn the, the boat around. And, and in many ways, he did in those first couple of years. He, he definitely, you know, righted the stock price. They doubled in market value. Uh, but there was def- definitely some parts of the culture that were not addressed. They still had issues, uh, including a, a, a Department of Justice. Uh, fine of $40 million for dumping, you know, waste and oil contaminated waste into the ocean. And they violated that promotion, uh, probation again as, as recently as 2019. Um, so going into 2020, you know, he, he was really talking about customer safety and, and, and sort of improving protocols. But then suddenly by February, they have this first outbreak aboard the ship and then another one and then another. And now we're up to about nine ships total. So when I talked to him in early April, what he kept saying to me repeatedly is, look, please, you just got to understand the position we're in. We were realizing this as the rest of the world was realizing this. Please don't Monday Monday uh, Monday morning quarterback. We were doing the best we can. And the thing about it is we also talked to the CDC and they were very emphatic in saying, 
look, we'd really understand that if it was just one ship or only the, the first two ships. But now we're at nine ships. How uh, the, the CDC official, Dr. Sidney Friedman, who leads the cruise ship task force, uh, she said, quote, that excuse doesn't fly. Wow. Well, it's I, I have to say, Carol and I both read it this morning and we're yeah. texting almost immediately. It is an unbelievable an unbelievably powerful piece of reporting, what? as Carol said uh, at the top. It's classic Bloomberg Business Week in, in many ways, just a deep dive into an issue uh, at the fore and a company story, a strategy story, uh, a story that will be studied, a case study that will be studied, I think, in terms of pandemic response and customer safety and stakeholders and Well, and you do wonder how much they come back, right? We're just talking yeah. about restaurants, you know, how tough it's going to be for them with, with social distancing. And you do wonder with cruise ships, I mean, it's hard to do any kind of social distancing. Um, Jolt Weber, thank you so much. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from Brooklyn and on the phone in New York, Austin Carr, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. It is the cover story, so do check it out, uh, that magazine on newsstands. Also, check it out at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We've been talking a lot about Wall Street over the past couple of days, in part because earnings from the big banks, they set the tone for the earnings season, and also big banks in a different way. And I was really interested to hear Allison Williams talk about this earlier, Carol. You know, yeah. big banks in a different position than they were in the previous crisis, the financial crisis, where really, to be fair yeah. and to be candid, they helped cause it. Uh, in this case, they can be part of the solution. And yet, we are hearing... Uh, a lot of pretty dire warnings uh, from leaders of Wall Street. Uh, Lenin Nguyen joins us on the phone from New York City, finance reporter, of course, for Bloomberg. A great story, one of the most read here on the Bloomberg today. First of all, Lenin, we haven't talked to you in a while. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks, Jason. I am still here in Manhattan, hunkered down. Yeah. How are you? Uh, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Uh, hunkered down elsewhere. Uh, I can't believe we're in week five of, of all of this. You know, this was a big week, as I said, for Wall Street. You've been tracking all the commentary from the big names. As you synthesize it, what are you hearing? What does it portend for the world at large? Well, Jason, you hit it right on the head there when you said that last time around the banks were you know, part of the cause, and this time they're trying to be part of the solution. Um, so a lot of the banks this week have made, you know, great pains to really talk about what they're doing for their employees and also what they're doing for the broader economy. But what really struck me after listening to a bunch of these calls and reading the transcripts is that the CEOs and executives said recession, unprecedented, extraordinary. These are really dramatic words they use, and obviously executives know um, what they're doing when they speak on earnings calls. So they don't really use these type of words lightly, which to me was made a really strong impression. All right. So who are they talking to, Lenan? I mean, is that at the president and his team to say, okay, here's what we're seeing, here's what's going on? Like, who, who are they really talking to? Is it investors? Who is it that they – because they know when they talk um, – the world listens. Certainly our audience listens, but the world you know, at large really listens. Yes, and I think what they're trying to transmit here is a sense that there is great economic pain to come. Uh, a lot of the bank CEOs sort of parroted their company's um, est- economic estimates about GDP, about unemployment. The second quarter looks pretty awful. Um, so they did kind of telegraph that to the broader economy, I think. And they also set the tone for other business leaders as they go into the earnings season. 
On top of that, we know that many of these bank CEOs are also talking to the administration. Many of them were on calls with the president uh, to discuss what's happening in the economy. And many of them recommended that testing was a kind of key step in going forward. Um, In order to reopen the economies, testing really has to be ramped up in order for us to kind of move forward. Lynn-Ann, I want to shift gears a little bit because I know you're talking to the banks and you're talking to all your sources on Wall Street and you know the culture of Wall Street so well. And Carol and I were just spending a few minutes talking about you know some of the comments from James Gorman about the footprint, the physical footprint of some of these big banks. You know, Here in the tri-state area especially, people really look to the banks as economic engines in many ways. The culture of Wall Street helps in part to set the culture of New York City uh, and beyond. How will Wall Street change in your estimation in its day-to-day operations, in its culture? I know we don't fully know that, but I wonder if you're getting any early signals here. Well, I thought it was very insightful that Gorman, who has recovered from the coronavirus himself, uh, made some pretty intense comments on the call today about the changes that he's um, seeing in the business. You know, the fact that he thought this would never be able to happen, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of employees working from home in the space of five weeks. Um, So he talked a lot about the changes and the kind of mindset shift that has happened in the last few weeks. Um, So yes, that footprint is really, uh, you know, major. Obviously, Morgan Stanley's in Times Square. A lot of the banks are real anchors in terms of uh, their big office towers and iconic buildings in New York and other financial hubs. So I think this is definitely going to cause some soul searching and cause people to reset and think, do we need all of this office space? Do we need these towers? Do we need open plan offices? Is that a good idea anymore. So there is a lot of thinking about this. And I talked to another CEO in a um, an electronic trading firm who said, for sure, he's looking at his real estate and saying, I don't need to be, you know, as big in Madison Avenue. People are working from all over the place and they're working even harder than before. You know, it's so funny. Don't we have like this kind of inside or maybe outside joke, not joke, about when companies build like these massive big headquarters, it always <laughs> spells trouble. But I do, you know, isn't J.P. Morgan in the midst of doing a big headquarters uh, Yeah, 270 Park City? Avenue. I mean, it's it's supposed it's to be like, that was going to be the Jamie Dimon legacy building, right? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, so yeah. Lynn-Ann, when you talk to everyone, I mean, what, what you know, you've been reporting on this world for, for a while now. Um, what's the mood that you're hearing? What are you hearing from individuals? I'm hearing a sense of trepidation and of concern. I think a lot of employees who are able to work from home right now are dealing with the same sense of all of their worlds are colliding. So people are working from home. They're also dealing with family, um, either in their homes or outside and worrying about loved ones. Um, So it's this sense of collapsing all of your worlds together. Um, You know, we're all very much more understanding of kids and dogs and noise in the background. Um, And so there is a a general human element of this that's changing Um, you know, my conversation with my sources. Mm. On top of that, they're thinking about where Wall Street goes. Are they going to go back to the office anytime soon? Uh, Do they want to do that? Are they capable of doing that? Or are they, you know, feeling that they want to stay home for the protection of themselves and their families? So that's a real tension that we've noticed in the last few weeks. And we've been covering that very closely with my colleagues. Well, great reporting as always. And you stay safe. Lynanne Nguyen, she's finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. 
This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We're just about 12 minutes away from the closing bell. We do have a headline crossing. President Trump mapping out a phased reopening in guidelines for the state. So just building on uh, the conversation we just had and Charlie, of course, talking about it, too. But, you know, starting to work with governors to figure out how do we reopen and how do we do it safely so that we don't get another second wave of the virus. All right. Let's bring in our guest. Yeah, let's do that. And much more to come. As you heard Charlie say, 6 p.m., the president will address the nation or through a press conference. Uh, that daily briefing will be largely about this reopening plan. And I have a feeling we are going to continue to get some uh, details and, yeah. and uh, bits and pieces as it comes out, as it has been shared pretty widely among the governors of the states across the United States. Mitch Rubin with us, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner at River Park Funds, joining us on the phone from here in lovely Westchester. Uh, New York. Mitch, uh, nice to talk to you and hope you're well. Yeah, great to be here. And yeah, thankfully, um, me and my family are both doing fine. Good, good, good to hear. Um, So the market feels like it's doing a a little bit more fine uh, than it was. You know, your funds, uh, your fund has done a pretty incredible job. I was just messaging Carol in our sort of chat that we have, uh, you know, beating basically everyone uh you know five years in the 99th percentile one month in the 90 you're you're in the 98th 99th percentile uh for your river park long short opportunity fund uh talk to me about what you're seeing out there right now in terms of opportunities because fair amount of tech it looks like in your portfolio yeah well we the the fund is a is essentially a uh a hedge fund a long short equity hedge fund that's in a mutual fund structure so we think Mm. of it as kind of the best of all worlds and offering that ability to have a fund that um, has a dual mandate that can both compound uh, our investors' money at equity-like rates, but also protect capital uh, in markets that are disrupted, such as this one. And yet we offer it uh, as a mutual fund, so low uh, minimums, daily liquidity. We don't charge a promote or none of the sort of downsides of being in a hedge fund. And I think hedged vehicles have not you know, been in favor in straight-up markets. But I think when you look at the kind of uh, disruption and dispersion that comes from either market-altering events or that just come over time from the creative destruction of businesses succeeding and businesses failing, a fund that has a lot broader tool set and um, has the ability to profit no matter what's going on in the market, um, and yet, you know, in a straight-up market might perform a little bit worse than the average index, but has the ability to make money or protect capital in a down market. So, uh, you know, that's the structure of the fund, and we're we're certainly uh, excited about the performance we've had, but um, we we believe it's still the right fund uh, for a lot of people to be in for the for what the future holds. And it's active, correct? It's active, yeah, and so we're very much active. We're stock, we're old school stock pickers. So yeah. bottoms up research. <laughs> well- Individual stocks, we don't use ETFs or indexes, or we do use derivatives from time to time, but we we absolutely believe over time that long-term research into individual companies uh, and selecting the winners and losers based upon earnings growth and valuation is still the key to long-term investing. And while you know people have gravitated towards passive over time, we think active stock picking really is critical, especially during periods of time where where there's a disruption that causes certain businesses to thrive and others to fail. 
Well, and it's interesting I bring it up because there was a story uh, in reading in this morning. I think it was the Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, huge fund, and they were finding that those active fund managers were actually outperforming some of the passive strategies. And so I just find it interesting, right, when we're coming off a world where so much has been passive, that when you have a time of volatility, uh, sometimes it helps to be active, right, and really watch what's going on. Yeah, I think what, what, what happens in an index is you don't realize that the index generally is a bias towards what has worked lately, but not necessarily either quality of business, quality of balance sheet, valuation. It's really just uh, based on a different set of rules. And then everybody tends to pile in, you know, in a, in a time where passive has taken share, people tend to bid up the index, and not every company in the index is deserving of that. And so when you have events, whether you have oil prices collapse or interest rates collapse or, uh, you know, something like this where certain businesses uh, have gone dark and others are still operating. The index hasn't necessarily been structured in that way. And and also, I think investors tend to do the exact opposite of what they should do. So you tend to get people sell when markets are down and buy right. when markets are up. And that accentuates your 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 um, offense or defense if you're in an index. And so if you're yeah. if you're actively managed, you have the ability, you know, to pick and choose where your exposure is. And I think it those benefits are highlighted when the market's disrupted, not when it's gone straight up. So talk to us about some names. Uh, you know, as I mentioned at the top, you've got some big tech in there, Microsoft, Amazon. Uh, you also have, I really want to talk about this one, uh, given some of my uh, journalistic interests, Blackstone, BX, uh, yeah. pretty big holding. Tell us about that one. Okay, so, you know, we, we are absolutely bottoms-up driven growth investors on the long side. Uh, so, And then on the short side, we're looking for businesses that are, being disrupted by innovation or creative destruction. Blackstone, so so in a normal growth fund, yes, we have a lot of tech. There's a lot of disruption going on in tech and innovation, although I think the word tech is too broad. Sure. There's a lot of businesses. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, but for Blackstone, so this is a, you know an asset manager. You don't necessarily think of asset management as a growth business, uh, but they are a alternative asset manager. They, they started as just a private equity fund, and they've diversified into a multi-strat manager. They, they've had extraordinarily good performance, but they're also structured in a way that matches up to a lot of giant asset investors in that they are, they're not daily mark-to-market funds. Right. They're meant to be invested for seven to 10-year timeframes. That means you can use long-term debt. That means you can actually buy the business outright and manage it. It also means that you tend to have capital available to buy when the markets are down, and then you're incentivized to sell when they're up. They, they make money by taking things public or selling them to other people, and they only get paid when they profit. Um, uh, you know, and, so, and they also, I think, uh, they have a dual earning stream. So they make mm-hmm. fees. You know, they have a fee-based business that's better than any mutual. They have a much better business than I do. They They collect fees whether they're up and down every any quarter because they're they're based they're uh based on closed funds so the right. investors don't take money out and then they they profit if they're right at any point over time because they choose when to exit and then they're also unlike my business they have massive fees that have not been under pressure and so while you know I run a fund that doesn't charge a promote right. all of their funds uh <laughs> both make fees and profits and that's right. 
you know, much better for them. They've and got so a big time promote. That's uh, <laughs> that, that's to be sure. We're going to need to continue this conversation yes. at some point down the line because I could go another 35 yeah. minutes with you just on Blackstone. Um, and we want to talk about much more. Thank you so much, uh, Mitch Rubin. Great to spend some time with you. Chief Investment Officer, Managing Partner at River Park Funds on the phone in Westchester. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.